Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast, episode number 260. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell here with you from those Zone Radio studios in Bangor. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Two talented folks join us this week on the program. A little bit later on, actor Rich Summer talks about his work on the HBO series White House Plumbers. Up first, though, a Peabody Award winner and Emmy Award winner making his directorial debut with a brand new documentary that comes to HBO on the 26th called Being Mary Tyler Moore. Fascinating uh, subject for a documentary and a really well-done film. We talked to director James Adolphus about the making of Being Mary Tyler Moore. Hi, Rich. How are you doing? I'm Thanks great. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, man. I, I just love the film. It was so good. Um, as a big Mary Tyler Moore fan, what drew you to Mary's story? Rich, um, I have to be honest with you. You know, before I was invited to be a part of this project, I had never seen a single frame of anything Mary had ever done. Not a single episode of the Dick Van Dyke show, the Mary Tyler Moore show. And I managed to skirt through both undergrad and graduate film school without seeing ordinary people. So now that you've met her, do you feel like you know her? And how do you feel about her after diving into this project? It was been about three years, right? Three and a half, almost four years now of of getting to this place in the journey. And yes, Rick, I think I know Mary Tyler Moore intimately. And it's a strange thing to get to know someone and feel like you know them and you have an intimate knowledge of who they are, the nuance of their character. But you can only get to know them through the words of their of their book and their performances and the interviews. I mean, what is on screen in the film is what I had to use in order to get to know who Mary Tyler Moore was. Well, I, I think she's a different person than, than, than who our audience believes that she is or, or did until we made this film. Absolutely. Well, I love the fact, too, that you told her story largely in her words. And I think it, it made it a very a powerful couple of hours to, to hear what she had to say about herself. I, I agree. I think giving Mary the first word, the last word in this film was, was powerful, but it was always the, the aim. I started this journey reading Mary's autobiography and, you know, I read it a few times before I watched her body of work and dug into that. And I wanted Mary to have a chance to speak for herself, especially because she wasn't here to participate in the film. But it was, of course, extremely challenging to portray a version of Mary that was present within the pages of her autobiography and then do it on screen. Because unfortunately, you know, Mary passed away without ever recording a, an audio version of her book. And we didn't have that. And we didn't want to use AI technology to mimic her voice. And we didn't want to bring in someone prominent to to be a voiceover artist and read pages of, you know, passages from Mary's autobiography. So we embarked on what we felt like at many times um, was an impossible journey of telling, portraying Mary's life and legacy in her own words from her point of view. And you also did speak with a number of people, a couple of friends of our show, the wonderful Treva Silverman, uh, the late Ed Asner. But I, I really thought it was effective that you only use their voice and that kept our focus on Mary. 
You know, I I can't take credit for for that. You know, we were probably eight months into the edit, approaching the first rough cut, and our esteemed producer Lena Waith hadn't yet seen any of the film. She was really eager. And Mariah Remit, the film's editor, and I spent a lot of time borrowing from pre 1950s cinema to use as metaphors in the film, a lot of visual metaphors for parts of Mary's life that we didn't have access to. Oddly enough, before we stumbled upon a trove of archival material, eight months into the edit, there was really a dearth of behind the scenes content, home movie content of Mary. We really only had our performances to work with. And we had a lot of archival stand-ins for Mary's life. And when Lena got around to watching the cut, she responded a lot to how Mary's life felt when we lived within the archive. And at that time, we were still doing other traditional things in documentaries, like cutting to Ed Asner, um, his actual recorded interview, because we did have two camera interviews for everyone in the film. But Lena loved how the archive felt. She loved, as a super fan, of course, she thought it was a lot more impactful. And, you know, she was like, yeah, let's give the audience really what they want. And what I want is more of Mary. So I understand why you, you know, you, you guys are doing this traditional doc thing, but why don't you just lean into the art, lean into the archive, let's cover everything up. And so we did. We covered, we covered everything up, and it, I think it. I think you're right. It makes the film a lot more engaging, and it's, it's a very special journey to be on. Were you surprised that Lena was such a big fan of Mary's work? I, I, I don't think you know. I had just embarked on a working relationship with Lena. We were finishing a documentary on sneaker culture for the the late Quibi Network, and. Um, I don't think anything at that point had surprised me about Lena. I think she's a fascinating and, and brilliant human being who I think like me has had a journey, um, an unconventional journey in, in finding her place in the industry. I think that for Robert Levine, he was incredibly shocked and surprised that Lena had a, you know, that Mary meant so much to Lena, so much so that, you know, Lena has a tattoo of Mary Tyler Moore on her body. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> you know, I think that if Lena wasn't in Vanity Fair in 2018, if Robert hadn't come across that article and, and seen the photo, the Annie Leibovitz photo of Lena watching Mary Tyler Moore show at home, um, we wouldn't be here today. You know, Lena within those pages expressed how much she loved Mary and that in her career, she had always hoped to make a film about Mary Tyler Moore. I think for Robert, because he was surprised and he, and he was, you know, surprised that unapologetically black queer women from the South side of Chicago, you know, shouted out Mary Tyler Moore in such a profound way. Um, and so Robert reached out to Lena and they spent five or six hours together at the estate. And by the end of that day, Robert handed her the keys to Mary's life and legacy. We're talking with James Adolphus. So the new film is called Being Mary Tyler Moore. It premieres on HBO on, on May 26th. She was certainly an independent career woman, but her story is one of contradictions, including the fact that she wasn't always comfortable with being labeled a feminist. That's very true. Mary was not very comfortable being labeled a feminist. And, and you know, I, 
Mary's not here to speak for herself, but I think about the moment in the film where Mary is referred to as a feminine feminist. And my mom has now seen the film twice. She was there at the premiere at South by Southwest and again at the screening and uh, at the Minneapolis St. Paul Film Festival. And we spoke about being a feminist feminist twice. And my mom is grew up Catholic like Mary and she grew up in a conservative home. And the only way my mother, just as Mary was able to move out of the house at 18 years old was, um, you know, in the arms of a man as a married woman. Uh, polite society demanded that. And I think Mary was a fierce and staunch supporter of feminism, but polite society and the, the, the stereotype of a bra-burning feminist were at odds with each other for Mary. And even though there was never a moment where women banded together and removed their bras to burn them, this is a myth and that has attached itself to the second wave, Mary couldn't, she didn't grow up in a world where she could identify with that version of activism. I personally can, I am, I love being out on the streets, but I understand that Mary was not that woman. I also understand that Mary, you know, and it's very present within the Suskin interview of the film, Ooh. Mary was a, a staunch like advocate of feminism. And that interview, by the way, is so uh, powerful to watch her reaction and, and to remember that there was a time when that was not that long ago, a pretty commonplace approach here in America. It is phenomenal. When, you know, when we came across that interview, knowing that it's, you know, Mary was fresh off the Dick Van Dyke show, that she was one of the most famous people in this country at that moment, a highly successful woman. And it still didn't matter to David Susskind, who was a mainstream television host that American patriarchy could so blatantly question the value of Mary's life. Both was shocking, but it was something I understood quite deeply. I'm black and Puerto Rican and I feel like patriarchy is always telling me who I am and what I should be striving to achieve. It's, it's regularly informing me in different places in my life, like it has with Mary where the glass ceiling is. There were, there were expectations of Mary, certainly after Dick Van Dyke and then after the huge success of the Mary Tyler Moore show. And she certainly flipped those upside down when she took the role uh, in Ordinary People. But as she pointed out in a, a couple of different conversations in the film, there were elements of her in all of those characters. But certainly Ordinary People seemed to let her express a part of herself that the public hadn't seen. You know... I haven't lived a very forward-facing life. I've been a cinematographer for two decades, and you know this is my directorial debut as a filmmaker. I can't imagine what it means to be forward-facing for decades mm. on end. To be known only as a person, you know, who's inspired millions, obviously, but you are known as the woman with the eternal smile to present that day in and day out. 
even as satisfying as it is knowing you're an inspiration to a country still has to be exhausting. And I know that in the company of her most trusted loved ones, Mary was able to just turn that off, be a normal human being and be a, a, a woman who was allowed to be vulnerable, was allowed to be human and not have to hide the fact that she has experienced and continue to experience loss and suffering. I think that Robert Redford was a very smart individual for recognizing <laughs> that, of course, that version existed within Mary Tyler Moore. And how powerful would that be to see someone we think of as the opposite, as a better reflection of who all of us are, human. The archival footage that you use is so powerful. And, and uh, perhaps uh, for me personally, most of all, that, that wonderful video of her bridal shower when I felt like we really got a glimpse into the person she was around those closest to her. Rick, we were eight months in of a 10-month edit into the process before we stumbled upon that trove of material that is featured heavily in the, the third act of the film, including the bridal shower. And it remains my favorite sequence in the film because Mary's entire life was a guarded life. And I think the bridal shower is, you know, magic because it is Mary's one unguarded moment in the entire film. And if, I wish we had, an, you know, wish half the film was unguarded. I wish Mary was here to be unguarded with us. But I, I think our lucky stars that, that at the 11th hour, we, we found that moment. And it, it seems, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm oversimplifying that, that she had to, certainly with uh, Robert Levine, she was able to find herself and find a level of happiness. He makes a tuna sandwich sound like the most romantic thing in the world, but also <laughs> that she, she kind of had to step away from, well, from being Mary Tyler Moore to really find herself and be at peace. I feel so grateful, you know, for one, Robert, Dr. Robert Levine, he's become a very close friend, but that Mary was able to end that part of life, you know, in her forties, find true love. And I really do think that Mary and Robert, their love was the truest. It makes me, I'm happy knowing that Mary was given that. You know, I think Mary, still with all of her success in her life, had to deal with the ageism that comes with Hollywood. And even after the success of Ordinary People, I don't think that Mary was allowed a, a given a role that was as significant as who she portrayed on Ordinary People or even, you know, the television series she's most known for. That Mary had Robert and that in their love, she could beat alcoholism and that love and support, she could dedicate the last third of her life to juvenile diabetes activism. For her and for millions of folks who struggle with diabetes, I think that's a blessing. Uh, a lot of folks that we interviewed for the film, including Rosie O'Donnell, when, when asked, what is Mary's most important legacy? Half our respondents said that it was her juvenile diabetes research. That advocacy was able to raise $2 billion just in when she was here and another 500 million since she's, she's gone. And you know, 
she's helped to make so many lives a little more bearable, a little easier. Navigating such a horrendous disease that did ravage parts of Mary's life toward the end. So uh, her her last show has been off the air now for more than 45 years. Um, there probably is a generation out there who's not sure who Mary Tyler Moore was. Uh, when this film drops on HBO uh, later this month, how can her story uh, both inform people and their lives here in 2023 and, and inspire people going forward? I think it's, I think Mary's life is an inspiration both then and now because we are still struggling with so many of the same issues that she had to deal with. This is, it's obviously really unfortunate, but this country is in a huge fight for where the direction of women's rights and privacy are going. One would think that we have, we would have overcome this in Mary's era. I mean, the roles that she played on both the Dick Van Dyke show and the Mary Tyler Moore show embodies progress. They are the... But it feels like, you know, the pages are being flipped backwards. We are moving um, into a space that is unknown and yet known and dangerous. It feels scary if Mary's life and her legacy and her story can remind folks of how far we had come and how quickly it is we are moving backwards. I think just there is reason enough for, for folks to to watch this film in two weeks when we release on HBO. Well, it is a wonderful film of being Mary Tyler Moore. I loved your work on Soul of the Nation as well. James, it's wonderful to have a chance to talk with you today. Rick, I'm grateful that we had the time to speak today. I had a lot of fun. James Adolphus talking with us about his documentary, Being Mary Tyler Moore. When we come back, actor Rich Summer, next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Do you remember your President Nixon? Do you remember the bills you have to pay? Our next guest on Downtown Plays Nixon aide Eagle Krogh in the new HBO series White House Plumbers. You know him for his work as Harry Crane on Mad Men. He was with uh, Anne Hathaway and The Devil Wears Prada. Great to welcome back to the program, actor Rich Summer. Rich, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How have you been? Very well. I mean, you know, we're our industry is a little bit topsy-turvy these days, but other than that, I've been personally okay. Yeah, so we got through COVID, and now you know, we're going to throw uh, we're going to throw a strike at you. That's right. Well, uh, it's it's time, frankly. I think uh, the the reasons are are right, and I'm I'm out there every day picketing with the writers, even though I'm not in the writers guild. So it's it's a cause I fully support. Well, do the do the producers, do the makers of television shows feel that way? 
Uh, well, I think the the show most of the showrunners, most of the people who create the shows, are members of the Writers Guild, so they certainly feel that way. As far as the producers, the people above them, not necessarily. I don't think they feel the cause is uh, uh, entirely just, or even even though they they probably do somewhere in there, but they they also know that there's uh, there's always a way to get a little more money out of it. So that's where we're at. Well, let's talk about this new project. White House Plumbers uh, is great. I enjoy the show so much. How did you get involved with it? It was the last audition I did in person before uh, COVID happened. I auditioned in March of 2020. And, of course, uh, the world shifted a little bit. Mm. I didn't hear anything from them and promptly forgot about the project. And then almost one year exactly later, I got a call saying, hey, you booked White House Plumbers. And I said, which one was that? <laughs> uh, it was a great uh, surprise. Uh, so it was my first time back on a plane in COVID, went, went out there and we shot it. Now it's been two years since we filmed it. So uh, we're very excited to have it out there. Wow. Uh, what's it like working with David Mandel? I, I'm a big fan of David's. Of course, I, I am a Seinfeld fan, first and foremost. And he wrote several key episodes, including the the bizarro Jerry uh, episode. I mean, he's just, uh, he's had his hand in many of the funniest things on television. So it was an honor to get to work with him. And man, what a great ensemble. Uh, you know, Woody Harrelson, he doesn't do anything halfway, does he? No, he uh, <laughs> he likes to jump in all the way. Uh, same with Justin Thoreau. I mean, Justin, uh, that, that look that he has on White House Plumbers is all him. So uh, <laughs> one of our first conversations over dinner when I was in New York filming, he was him with a heavy sigh and that giant mustache saying, I have to have this thing for the next five months. Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> I think he was realizing what he had gotten himself into. And uh, your former uh, Mad Men castmate, Kiernan Shipka, all growed up. Yeah, first time I'd gotten to see Kiernan since we wrapped. We uh, had a dinner together as well out in, in uh, near Poughkeepsie where we filmed the bulk of the show. Uh, and she ordered a glass of wine, and I really had to sort of <laughs> remind myself how much time had passed since uh, season one when she was seven years old. It was, uh, it was it's still remarkable to see it. Now, uh, you play uh, Nixon aide Eagle Crow in White House Plumbers, and uh, I think the show is based on a book that Eagle wrote along with his son. What are the challenges of, of playing a real person? It's always a little intimidating. You don't want to disappoint the people who are around who remember that person. Uh, you, and then sometimes, you know, when people are really uh, big public figures, of course, the public has a memory of them as well. Luckily, uh, Mr. Krogh uh, isn't widely, uh, his personality isn't widely known these days, so I didn't feel too beholden to trying to do an imitation or anything. But yes, his book, initially titled Integrity, uh, now uh, retitled White House Plumbers uh, and, and out there for people to find, was, was sort of the jumping off point for the show, but they also accessed lots and lots of historical documents, obviously, and other uh, tellings of the story. Well, as somebody old enough to remember all this when it was happening in real time. Uh, the show is great, and I just, uh, when I watch it, I think of the line from All the President's Men when when Hal Holbrook, his deep throat, says, uh, you know, these these guys just weren't very smart, and it got out of hand. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, uh, obviously, with someone like David Mandel at the helm of a show like this, and with Woody and Justin in the lead, uh, there's lots of room to sort of capitalize on the buffoonery that certainly ran through that pair. 
We're talking with Rich Summer here on Downtown. Enjoyed your work as well on uh, a series with a friend of our show, Stephen Tobolowski. Uh, what was it like making Minx? I'm a big fan of everyone over at Minx. Uh, it's, it's, that show has gone through its trials as well. You know, we were filming. I'm, I'm barely in the first season, but I'm, I'm heavily featured in the second season. And we were within a week of wrapping on season two, and uh, HBO Max canceled the show. The good news is they handed the show over to Lionsgate, their producing partner, who then pretty quickly was able to sell it to stars. And so season two for Minx will be out July 21st. Very excited. It's a really fun season. And the, the cast, I mean, if you've seen the show, it's it's a really uh, uh, edgy and fun show to be a part of. Now, since we talked with you last time, among other things, you had quite the adventure, we'll call it, uh, going to Serbia. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. A friend of mine who's a director and producer, Trevor White, had called to ask if I would be interested in going to Serbia for a few weeks to do a movie called Fair Play. And uh, I, oh boy, I got on the plane to my layover in Istanbul, Turkey, and midway through the flight, they said there was some weather on the ground in Istanbul. Uh, it ended up being sort of a snowfall of the century, part of this new airport in Istanbul. The, the roof caved in. It was wild. We were rerouted to a very small town called Antalya, Turkey, where I was sort of stranded for the next 36 hours. I was supposed to be on set the next day. And uh, instead, we were trying to figure out if we routed me through Saudi Arabia and then Berlin, can we get me to Belgrade? Uh, finally, they, they ended up, uh, for a very small independent film, uh, breaking the bank a little bit and getting me a, a private plane just to get me to Belgrade so that I could get on the ground. But the movie turned out fantastically. It was at Sundance this year, was one of the sort of big uh, buzzes at Sundance and uh, was uh, purchased by Netflix and it'll be out later this year. Oh, good. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, Fair Play is the name of the movie and it got great reviews at Sundance. Uh, so uh, uh, do you have a, a possible premiere date for it on Netflix? I haven't heard. I, I think it will be within this calendar year, um, but just later in the year. My, my guess is they're going to try and angle it for award season. That's fantastic. Well, looking forward to it. From what I've read, uh, it looks great. Uh, you also did, among other things, uh, you were in King Richard. Uh, you, you didn't get slapped, did you? I didn't get slapped. Oh, boy, Rich, you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I did not get slapped. I was, I was very uh, – I had a great few days on set with uh, Will, Will Smith and uh, John Brenthal. They, they, you know, they were, they were absolute professionals on set, and uh, it was a thrill – thrill to get to work with them and in that movie i i that movie came out so well i was very proud to be a small part of it uh, you continue to do a whole lot of voiceover work as well that is that is it fun obviously it's still work but uh we we've talked to a number of voiceover people say there there are some advantages to doing that absolutely you don't have to shave you don't have to wear any particular clothing uh, much of it especially since the beginning of covid I do from uh, the closet in my office. It's a very uh, low investment, sort of high return kind of uh, part of the career. That said, it's really hard to book work in voiceover. It's not just, a, at least for me, it's not a switch I could just flip. I set out right at the end of Mad Men to kind of make that a viable part of my career. And, and while I have been really fortunate and gotten to do a, a handful of jobs, I'd, I'd always love to do more. And what have you got for some upcoming projects? Anything you can talk about? 
Right now in theaters, uh, another movie that I got to do is called BlackBerry, about the history of the, the BlackBerry device, the smartphone that came before the iPhone. And it is uh, doing really, really well for what, again, a really tiny independent film. It just seemed to kind of hit the ground running at the Berlin Film Festival and at South by Southwest earlier this year and has had a, a really nice theatrical run. And it's kind of playing all over the country. So if people want to take the chance to see something, it's a very uh, funny telling, again, of the history of BlackBerry, Jay Baruchel and Glenn Howerton star in it, and it's a, a really fun film. I took my wife and kids to see it. It's rated R, but the kids just swears. So we took the kids. It's the kids' first time seeing me in a movie in the theater, and uh, that was really fun. What a way. You great cast. Saul Rubinick, Carrie Elwes, Michael Ironside, and I, the fact that I still miss my BlackBerry terribly. Exactly. It's that click. We're not going <laughs> to find it again, Rich. It's, it's a very <laughs> elusive uh, feeling. So I, I have to uh, tell the story here. Uh, the last time you were on, we talked about games that we loved, and I mentioned the Mr. President game, and, and you said, well, I got an extra one of those. I'll send one your way, and I thought, well, that's nice. Never thought, you know, thought it was just, I thought it was just radio niceties, and then days later, I get a package in the mail, and there it was, and uh, well, you you made my year with that. That was that was such a kind thing to do, and it was it was so great to revisit that wonderful game from my youth. It's, uh, oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And, and I try to, I try not to do radio niceties. I try to keep it, uh, <laughs> you know, keep it real, especially with so we share the same name, Rich. I can't let you down. It's true. Uh, so I was, I was thrilled to be able to, to send that your way. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great game. And I think, like we said last time, it was one of those games uh, from 1965. I think it was ahead of its time. I, I still, still think it's a, a really playable game. Uh, that 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 has interesting mechanisms that a lot of uh, sort of standard uh, board game fare doesn't have. But I understand, based on my love of, of board games and, and political machinations, that I, I probably need to find a copy somewhere of Demacher and get into German political ramifications. I understand that's your favorite? It is absolutely uh, the game that I always name as my favorite. It's from 1986 in Germany. You can track it down. It's been printed several times and a handful of times in English. Uh, it's a really long game. Prepare to sit at the table for a minute with some complexities. But once you get going, it, it all makes uh, intuitive sense. It's not a hard game to learn. Uh, it just takes some time. But, yeah, you'll pick up some uh, some tips on the, how the Germans do it politically. I don't know. Maybe we could use some some changes. We'll, we'll see what they have to say. About I mean, it, it couldn't be worse, uh, I would say at this point. I have to ask you about this, too. You were uh, you were one of the many people out there who uh, who had some issues and, and continue to have issues with the Musk takeover of Twitter. And uh, you have left as well. Most of the free world has. What what was he thinking? How, how would you take something that it wasn't perfect. It could be a cesspool at times, but but had some benefits and absolutely destroy it. Well, look, first of all, just to be clear, I was exited from Twitter. I didn't leave of my own volition. I was I woke up one day and found out I, I was no longer welcome. Uh, but he is, I don't know, he's pretty sure he's right about everything, like uh, <laughs> many, many people in the world. And when someone like that happens to get their hands on the controls, and has a giant bankroll to back it up, there's not much you can do to stop them. Uh, so I, while, like you said, Twitter could be accessible at times, I sure 
did have fun there once in a while, especially in the early days. And I still sort of mourn it. I've tried to transition over to Instagram. It's not quite the same for me. It doesn't do what I, mm. what I enjoyed about Twitter. But uh, no, the Twitter that I did enjoy is, is certainly dead and not coming back. Now, what was the final straw when you changed your handle to Elon Musk? That was probably it, yeah, <laughs> when I started posting as Elon Musk had said some things that maybe he wouldn't himself have said. I think that was uh, roughly 30 hours before I was removed from the platform. <laughs> well, I thought it was great. I, I loved it. But we, those of us who are hanging around uh, when the tumbleweeds blow through, uh, we miss good people like you out there. But maybe we'll all find a, another place, another virtual home someday, somewhere. Well, if you find one, Rich, please let me know. If you're there, I will follow you, and we'll see what we can make happen. <laughs> that sounds great. Rich, uh, thank you so much for being with us. I uh, look forward to seeing more episodes of White House Plumbers, and we'll keep our eyes peeled for fair play on Netflix later in the year. Thanks for checking in with us again, and uh, hopefully we'll do it down the road. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back. Rich Summer talking about his work on White House Plumbers, uh, the upcoming film Fair Play, and much more. Always great to talk with Rich Summer here on Downtown. That'll do it for us this week. Thank you for joining us. We remind you that Downtown is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.